0: All right, playmakers, big news. The 2023 version of my What's Working in the Indoor Play Industry Guide is here. To learn about exactly what is working best right now for real-life currently operating indoor playground owners, head to the show notes to download my fully updated free guide. That's right, even if you've downloaded one of my What's Working guides in the past, you will not want to miss this new version made specifically with What's Trending and Fresh for 2023 in mind. Head to the show notes for the direct link or go to michellecaruanacom what'sworking to get the guide in your inbox right now. If you're in the play and party business and you wanna operate with more ease and joy all while making the living you dreamed of, I created the Profitable Play Podcast just for you. Join me, your host, Michelle Caruana, for small but mighty tips Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays that will all add up to a big impact on your mindset, your business, and your bottom line. Stick with me to keep the passion and grow the profit in your play or party-based business. Hey there, Playmakers. I hope you're having an amazing day. It's me, your host, Michelle Caruana. And one of the things I talk about quite a bit on this podcast is how we can differentiate our play space businesses and really find a niche that we feel called to serve. And because more and more play spaces keep popping up as consumer preferences move away from the giant discovery zone type places of the 80s and 90s, and move towards smaller, more intimate boutique-style spaces, it's more important than ever to really make sure your space stands out. Not just to stand out against competition, but to make sure you're attracting customers whose values and styles align with your own. And while there are many ways to do this, which, again, we have discussed before, one way I've seen businesses have success is choosing a play philosophy or system to follow when designing their space. And one of those philosophies is exactly what we're going to dive into today. So in today's episode, I am so excited to welcome guest expert, Jenny, the founder of The Alchemy Kids. So for some context, Jennifer, or Jenny, holds a master's in Waldorf education alongside Waldorf teacher certification. She also holds a bachelor of fine arts and has received specialized training in Waldorf Handwork for kindergarten and first grade, creative discipline, inclusion, and belonging, and supporting the development of self regulation in the growing child. Jennifer also has over 20 years of experience working with early childhood age children in various learning environments, leading a traditional Waldorf classroom, teaching English as a second language online, and Waldorf homeschooling and private childcare. So, She is the perfect person to speak to on this topic. Her work with the Alchemy Kids focuses on democratizing Waldorf education so that it becomes more accessible for people to integrate into their homes, classrooms, communities, and yes, even play spaces. So in this episode, Jenny is going to share about Waldorf education, what it is, what its guiding principles are, and how they manifest in a place-based business setting, since it is a bit different than how these principles would take shape in a traditional school setting. So she's going to kind of give you both sides of that coin. Now, I have to be honest, this is something that I had zero experience with going into this interview. So I really appreciate Jenny's insight and perspective here, and quite honestly, her patience, because you're going to hear in our conversation Just how new to me the style of play and learning is. But that's what lights me up about the play industry really is that we can all exist and impact our communities and our customers' lives in our own unique way and how there truly is room for us all. The key is embracing and leaning into our differences and unique qualities to again attract those who are best suited to our values and our businesses, which is also something we're going to get into today. So whether you're looking to just dip your toe in the Waldorf waters, if you will, and just add one supplemental program to your space to try it out, or whether you're looking to launch a fully functional Waldorf-style school or business, this episode is for you. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jennifer from The Alchemy Kids. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited because this is a topic that we haven't talked about before on this podcast, and it's very rare that we come across one of those topics. So before we get started and dive in, do you want to start off by letting everyone know who you are and who you serve?
1: Sure. Um, my name is Jenny Bazada. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I am a trained Waldorf teacher, but my work has shifted from the classroom to creating online curriculum and resources for families at home who want to integrate Waldorf principles or bring it into their local communities.
0: Awesome. So before we, you know, dive into that and how you help people, Can you explain a little bit about the Waldorf principles and what that concept even means? Because I know as a parent, I've heard it a million times, but I couldn't tell you, you know, if you stuck a microphone in front of my face, I couldn't tell you what it actually meant. So can you go over that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, a cute way to illustrate like how I came upon learning about Waldorf as a new parent, um, that story might be helpful. Um, I'm a single mom and I have a little girl. And when she was, I don't know, maybe like nine or 10 months, I started thinking about preschool. And I mean, in retrospect, it seems silly, but Her education was so important to me. And I was thinking about it even when she was that young. And I was on Pinterest, like of all places. And I think I always assumed that she would go to a Montessori school because I had worked with so many children who went to Montessori schools. And in many ways, I was impressed. And they all seemed to be extremely proficient at certain things and then challenged by other things. So I I found like an infographic and it compared like Montessori, Waldorf and Reggio. And it basically said like, these are the, the principles of each philosophy. This is what it looks like in the classroom. And then this is the kind of student that is typically produced in a program like this. And I knew that because our family was so small, community was going to be huge. I knew she wasn't going to be growing up with siblings in the house. Um, you know, our family's two people. So I thought I need a program for her that really focuses on children working together. Um, and less about children working individually, like on a task at a desk, uh, which can pres- Uh, it can be an incredible result, right, in some children, and then some things are lost when this happens during early childhood. So at the time, we were living on Cape Cod, and we honestly just got lucky that there was a Waldorf school there, because there are far fewer Waldorf schools than there are Montessori schools, I think, which is why, like, everyone knows Montessori, and fewer people know Waldorf. So we enrolled in a parent-child class. I didn't even know that like something like that was possible or existed. Um, and we went in and it was just like, from the moment we walked in the room, we I felt at home. I was a new mom, right? I already said single mom. Like It was also brand new. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but like at times it just kind of felt like, like what island have I landed on? (laughs) Like, I don't know what to do. Like it was so isolating like that first year and I needed community and I needed some kind of role model, I guess. And like, we were really lucky. We had this incredibly veteran teacher and the room was just, I mean, exquisite. Like the, the children, um, crawl around, like on the most plush sheepskins and rugs and like all of the toys are wooden or like handmade. And, um, so you basically felt okay with them, like putting their mouths on things like as babies do. Um, it just felt so warm. And then we all would share a community meal every single class. Um, And then before the community meal, the parents would talk about what they were going through. We would study an article, we would read a book together um, about being new parents, and we would observe the children in play. So this was my first introduction to letting children truly be free, like not moving them around to different um, opportunities, but letting them be fully in their bodies. Um, Letting them fall and get hurt. That was big for me. Um, As a new mom, I just didn't know I didn't want her to get hurt, you know, but I learned so much in that first parent child class. uh, And then we kept going. And um, what I learned early on about Wildorf, this was before my training, I was just so new, was that there was um, a great emphasis on the natural world. So even though we were in a classroom, um, we had to walk through the playground to come in, like the the older children would be outside raking and sweeping and gardening and working. And, um, you know, my baby was so little. So it was just sort of like, oh, wow, that's different. I've never seen that at a school. But then kind of growing with my daughter in these parent-child classes, it was very obvious that the ethos was different than any other school um, that I had known. Um, And yeah, it just kind of felt like this is a framework that I identify, like my family values feel in line with this framework. And I think this could be a really, healthy opportunity for her to develop like physically, cognitively, like spiritually, all of the ways. So
0: awesome. So just a couple questions, because that's a really yeah. cool story. Okay. So my kids both went to a Montessori school until they were in kindergarten. Yeah. Um, and then we ended up moving. We actually had planned to keep them in there through grade school, but we ended up moving. Yeah. and We just don't have that concept here. And it does sound a little bit similar, but can you talk a little bit about the key difference between maybe a Montessori environment versus a Waldorf environment?
1: Yeah. And I actually feel like I can talk about this because my, so we have an indoor play space like three minutes away and it's Montessori and they opened a preschool during COVID So my daughter was home for two years during COVID. And I say that like I homeschooled, I mean, I did on a certain level. By that point I was like fully trained. Um, I also, I'm not a big proponent of like formal academics young, but she went to the Montessori two days a week. I, I didn't let her do the academic part of it. I went so she could be with children because during COVID it was, you know how it was for our kids. Um, so I got to see a lot of what they were doing. And um, I think uh, I can't speak to the Montessori philosophy really eloquently. I don't I don't I feel that I would be ignorant to do that. So what I've just seen and what I saw my daughter in, um the way that it's different is there's definitely like benchmarks that the kids are moving towards in Montessori. Um, and I, the thing I love about Montessori is that it's very hands-on. Like, I, I think they do this so well and some of their manipulatives are so amazing. Um, So I see that like the little ones, three years old, like they're already starting to work with numbers and letters and things like that. So we don't do that in Waldorf until um, first grade. So like if I just took you through quickly, like what um, a kindergarten day looks like in Waldorf school, sure. um, it's all about rhythm. So that's like one of the main tenets of Waldorf education. So the, we follow a daily rhythm, weekly, monthly, yearly, and then seasonally, we follow the seasons um, sort of in celebration. Like we make a seasonal nature table for every season which I don't think is very different. I think you could do that in Montessori and, and you do. Um, but what we do with the children is they are in free play for most of the day with uh, open-ended toys. And the the times that they're not in free play, it would look like a short circle time where we come together and we sing and we move our bodies. Um, and a, a big thing in Waldorf is that the children need to meet each other. like visually so they need to be looking at each other and connected at least once right in the day but we do it more than that because at meals we all do a shared meal together around a table um where we face each other and we bless the meal it's not religious um I mean maybe some people do do it that way but tr- traditionally it is not I lead the children in a song about a fire fairy so we light a match And it's this real, like this moment of reverence, the children are gazing at the flame, we're blessing the meal, and then we all eat together. Um, And it's a really nice contrast to how free they are all day. (laughs) Like, you know, they're climbing trees, and they're digging holes, and they're building forts. And then um, we call it like an in-breath and an out-breath. So the free play is the out-breath but then we come together in these in-breaths. So that would be circle time, that would be a meal. Um, That might be a little bit of handwork. That could be some watercolor painting, just where the children are more focused and they really have to like hold their their will has to be really strong. And then we let them let it out um, in free play. So it's this really, really nice in and out where the children are not like exhausted (laughs) by the end of the day. and. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, I think a lot of that happens in Montessori, I think just also more academics than we bring. We do academics very loosely by with measurement, like we're doing a lot of cooking and baking with the children. Um, You know, we're stacking blocks to create forts and occasionally numbers will be mentioned. But like it's it's very like organic and just kind of it's child led. So we don't have a set curriculum, really. We let the children be the curriculum, um, I think, which is similar to Reggio. Um, And then that's really nice because it's flexible. You're going to have a different set of students every year if you're a classroom teacher. And we have to work with the children before us. Um, So there's a lot of space for um, differentiation and just meeting the children where they're at.
0: Awesome. So... Kind of along that same path, something that you said that I kind of mentally noted was that the Waldorf principles really mimic the natural world. So when it comes to designing a Waldorf classroom, are there Mm -hmm. any kind of must-haves or staples that you see in most places? Because again, my kids went to a Montessori school, so they had some consistencies between each classroom, right? In Montessori, they have the works and they have the, the manipulatives that you mentioned, Is there anything like that in Waldorf that's kind of the, you know, again, the must have for the space for that philosophy to be effective?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you asked about that, because in my own personal work, I talk about this a lot. Um, There is a very distinct aesthetic So the aesthetic is like the walls are painted in this very specific technique where the colors sort of like blend into each other. You wouldn't ever see black in um, or primary colors in the early childhood classroom. So there would be like really soft pastel colors. So probably like one or two um, very softly painted and blended colors on the wall, Um, rugs, and then rugs upon rugs, <laughs> because when we have our baby classes, um, we need to just really make sure they're supported because we start our baby classes at three months. So, you know, there's a lot of tummy time. So we're just like very conscious of the space. Um, the toys are wood. The furniture is wood. The toys are their hand sewn dolls. The teachers sew the dolls, um, something that we're kind of like known for, but like also like kind of teased about our dolls don't have faces so like they're just blank and the philosophy behind that is like barbie's always happy so like it's hard to put barbie in like a sad scenario when you're acting but again it's like it's these open-ended toys where like the baby could be experiencing all of these different feelings and like it it registers, especially like with little kids who are like learning about facial expressions and body language and like trying to, because this is like early empathy, just being able to like identify feelings Um, we really let the kids like be in freedom with all of this. So if they tell us that their doll is sad, like we're all in that story and like helping the child work through what the doll is going through. So it's really like a, it's a play object. I think I would call these things less toys. They're open-ended play objects. Um, the other incredible thing, um, is that like Because we don't require a ton of stuff, I think it's easier to duplicate, you know, like I always say like, (laughs) give me like a bag of apples like a few cutting boards and knives and like we could open the doors today, because it's just so simple like we don't need robotics. We don't need iPads. Like it's, it's very simple. And like the children are using uh, open-ended objects also from outside, like seashells and rocks, like the rock can be a telephone, like, you know, the rock, depending on the shape of the rock, like they could be pancakes. It's, it's incredible to see the children work with these open-ended objects because like, so we have these really big wooden blocks and one day they create a pirate ship. And the children are fully immersed, right, in this this water world. And then the next day, it's like a lemonade stand. And the children are having like a brand new experience with these objects that are just blocks, you know. But the children are projecting their own imaginations. And we do a lot of like play therapy without calling it play therapy. And the open-ended toys are so incredible for this because we're just really helping them live into, like, the feelings and the experiences. And, like, I look at the toys we grew up with, or I, I, I think we're, like, roughly the same age. Like, the Fisher-Price toys, like, they were clear. It was clearly a phone. <laughs> like, you know, there, there are not many other ways to interpret because it was so detailed with, like, the stickers. I think our children are having, like, just so much more of a free experience where they can work with their emotions through their play
0: in a way that's just so healthy for their
1: development.
0: Absolutely. That's really cool. And something that we were chatting about a little bit offline before we hit record is that something I've noticed in the play industry is that phrase, you know, open-ended play. And we've had a lot of discussions about this in my membership, which is a group of indoor playground owners. And it's something that people are putting a lot more emphasis on is, you know, encouraging that imagination. So I really appreciate you kind of walking through what a typical day looks like in a Waldorf classroom. Do you have any ideas on how that might translate to more of a drop-in environment? Like for example, Mm -hmm. how can somebody maybe create a space that is Waldorf driven by those principles, but they don't necessarily have that same structure of the same kids every day, the same times every day. How can we still, you know, potentially create a space with those same principles in mind?
1: Absolutely. And I've thought about this a lot because I've honestly thought about like opening one of these. Um, We don't have any Waldorf in Boston. So like I drive four hours a day for my daughter to go to her Waldorf school. Like, so that there is a need. So. I, so this is like really exciting actually for me to think about because my work is around access. And I think like most people can't or will not pay $25,000 for kindergarten when kindergarten is free, like in their town. But they would really still love like this really specialized experience for their child and that could be an after-school program that could be a drop-in program for homeschoolers that could be um, birthday parties and events and also we do a lot of like seasonal festival celebrations so world festivals seasonal festivals Um, things like that. We do these like very incredible lantern walks where the children all make their own lantern and then walk through the woods, like in complete silence with lit lanterns. And it's this really, really like profound experience for them. There's no reason why, you know, we couldn't have community events at a drop-in center. So, so we have the the one off events. Then I was thinking because the parent child classes are so wildly successful in the schools, and because they're really a feeder program to nursery, and they're not they're not cheap. If we're being honest, they're like five hundred dollars per session, and that session is only a few weeks long. <laughs> um, I think that that is a really smart model to begin with because new parents are like. I just don't wanna be in the house all day. (laughs) I wanna learn about this new journey that I just started on. Um, So I love the idea of parent-child classes, but then when you bring new moms into the fold, you have the opportunity for like lactation to come in and like all of these other um, mom-focused groups to meet. So you can also obviously be renting out space and off hours for um, like-minded organizations. Um, So I have created a, a kindergarten handwork course. And this is so like when you're at home and you're like, You know, loosely homeschooling, you're baking bread, you're making soup, you're like outside a lot, but you want to bring in like a little bit more form. Or maybe you realize when your child is coloring that like they're struggling with the grip, right? The crayon grip. Or like you have some questions about like their ability to cross the midline and their bilateral dexterity. So I've created it. It's, I mean, it's pure Waldorf, but I actually have like schools and therapeutic practitioners buying it right now for children who have like IEPs and children who are having trouble with the fine motor. So if I had an indoor Waldorf play space, I would run it as a 10 week session and I would do, um, so maybe I would do it. So I'm working with a five to seven year old child in a Waldorf classroom with this curriculum. But it's perfectly suited for the first or second grader who's never done handwork before, I think, which is like probably a lot of first and second graders. Um, so this could easily be an after school program. Um, let's see. So we have our parent child classes. Oh, so other than handwork, you could also do like Waldorf art. So we have some kind of specific art things that we do wet on wet watercolor painting beeswax modeling. And, um, so you could do form drawing. We bring that in first grade, but all of this is fine motor, like, like really good. And it's really creative. So the children don't know that they're in any kind of therapeutic practice. It's just fun and it's beautiful. And the colors, it's just, Waldorf is so much about color. If you like just Google, like you'll never see black That's like a a big thing. Like it's, it's all alive and it's supposed to awaken, you know, all of these feelings in the children. So I would do a lot of art classes. I would do um, a membership program for free play because the, so we use the Pickler Triangle. We use the most incredible wooden climbing structures. If the children don't have access to outside, which of course is understandable, they might not in a, a situation like this. I would be building rock walls. I would be having swings coming down. I would be having um, climbing ladders that that hang. Um, a lot of physical input because a lot of the children really need the physical input. I would have a cozy corner for reading. I would have weighted blankets available. Um, We're seeing just more and more children with all of these different needs. um, And we wanna be able to meet all of these different children. I think a huge misconception with Waldorf is like, oh, it's only for a specific kind of child because on like the internet, you see these like very quiet, reserved children like quietly kneading dough at a table like that is not what our classrooms look like like at all people have actually said to me like I've never seen more poorly behaved like little children and I do agree like we truly let these kids be who they are. <laughs> and they're developing. I mean, like, we don't distract them with a the toy when something is happening. We sit down with them and we hold space and we allow them to explore it. And yeah, there's hitting sometimes and there's kicking and throwing. And like, they're children. And I think people like look at Waldorf sometimes and they're like, oh, well, that's not me. Like, I can't do that. Like, my kid could never sit still. We have plenty of little boys who can't sit still. We have little girls who can't sit still. You know, like we've seen it all. Once, if you've been in the classroom, you know, like children are children anywhere you go Montessori, Waldorf, public school, like they're kids. And we just have to create the environment that supports all of the different sensory things that they might be dealing with.
0: I love that. And yeah, my son definitely struggled with some of the structure in the Montessori school. I think from what it sounds like it was a bit more structured um, and there, there was a lot more expectations even in the, the younger classroom. So it's really cool to hear a different philosophy. And I love what you mentioned about the potential of having, you know, these parent child classes, these one-off classes, these seasonal events and workshops, because if I had to guess, I would assume that a lot of the people that are in your daughter's Waldorf school probably found the Waldorf principles and the philosophy in a similar way, right? By attending one of these classes or by looking up online or just by dabbling in it and realizing that, you know, it's something that, um, that that's values really align with their own. So I love the opportunity to kind of allow people to dip their toe in the water without having to make like the full investment commitment. You know, my child is going to go to a Waldorf school. So I love that Mm -hmm. idea of kind of introducing people to the concepts and the philosophies. And something that we talk a lot about on my podcast is that, you know, you don't have to pigeonhole yourself when it comes to business model. So you can have these one-off classes. You can also add a preschool, like the one local to you did You can have, you know, these one-off classes as introductory options that feeds into kind of a more structured long-term program. So, I love how you mentioned that all of these different things can work together to really help, again, introduce the Waldorf principles, whether somebody is just getting started or whether somebody is fully committed.
1: And thank you so much. Like, I agree with everything that you just said. And I wish that I had like invented these parent child classes. I don't think anybody did it with like great strategy. I think that they started because there was a need, because there were community members with new babies that needed support. Um, but they truly are a feeder to the program, to the early childhood program and the way that I would, and you know, like if ideally I could create this program today, it would be, um, we start with the drop-in with the membership with, um, I, I guess, yeah, that they, they could probably, is that how you do it? Like you, with a larger membership tier, you can be involved in everything and then it's tiered from there. Like, mm-hmm. So I would definitely do that, but I would have the kids age out of, um, parent child with a classroom to go right into i think that's the best way and i i saw so the people who did it over here in the backyard like they have to go through like the eec so they're they have to be licensed through massachusetts which is a little different when you are a private school that has the grades it's it's a different if you have like what grades one through whatever it's different for early childhood but i think that financial model is incredible because you can like totally hold a family through the first seven years. So that's, that's a great customer, (laughs) right? For, yeah, if they don't have to leave for seven years, like that's, I think the way to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So is somebody able to kind of, you know, transition from a more traditional environment to a Waldorf environment, maybe when their child is like three, four, five, Or is it something that you really try to encourage from, you know, essentially the three-month-old that you mentioned is when you start your classes? Is it possible, I guess is what I'm asking, for somebody to choose Waldorf in the middle of their child's education?
1: Well, of course, because we have children who transfer into the grades, you know, in fifth grade, or we just had two new second graders in our class this year. Um, Yeah, we don't, I would never say it's I would never say it's too late with most things, but especially with children. Children are so plastic, right? They're so flexible. And to to go into a potentially more nurturing environment is probably easier than going into like a rigorous academic experience. Um, we truly meet the children where they're at. And I know, I mean, my daughter's older, she's in second grade, but I even see like her teacher's incredible. And the differentiation that is happening within that classroom to meet children at different levels of reading and math, it is incredible. And it's, I think the benefit of having a smaller school, a smaller ratio, um, it's easier in that way, I think. Um, Now, are we going to say like the child who went through early childhood in Waldorf, did they have an easier time in the grades? So maybe, maybe, although like their nervous systems are more developed by the time they're in the grades, right? So there's like I, there are, have been very few children who I've met in the world who have said, like, they could never go to a Wilder school. Very few. Um, it's more the parents that I would meet the parents and say, this might not be the right place. Um, because maybe they are looking for really aggressive math early on or, or something like that. You know, it isn't going to be for everyone. But when we're talking about early childhood, um I think that things like the more research that gets published, I think on the benefits of children not being on screens, on being together, especially after COVID because they missed so much with the masks and we're seeing so much of that in some of the children. It's very clear a lot of children didn't have the early childhood that they deserved. So I actually think that now is the best time especially after COVID that there ever has been for Waldorf to really scale. I think the barrier is more people need to talk about it in a really down to earth way in the way that we are, because when you see it on the internet, it just doesn't feel accessible.
0: Absolutely. And kind of a logistics question that kind of goes along mm-hmm. with that if somebody was interested, you know, maybe they're in the planning phase of opening a space and they're interested in exploring the Waldorf philosophy. Are there any, you know, accreditations they have to go through to call themselves a Waldorf space or a Waldorf inspired space, or is there any Mm -hmm. sort of like process that they would have to go through to get again, certified or something like that?
1: That's a really great question. So we are, um, accredited through organizations that, that give us teaching certificates. Okay. I honestly have never heard of a Waldorf inspired play space, but my instinct and experience based on the Montessori one in the backyard is they're going through the state for licensing are they calling themselves Montessori inspired? That's a good question. I think that I know like in the schools, we will lose accreditation if we don't have a certain amount of Waldorf teachers teaching in the school at one time. Um, So I, I know that you couldn't get accredited as a play space without trained Waldorf teachers. I think there's more flexibility to call yourself Waldorf inspired. But my recommendation would always be to bring teachers into the fold. Um, Because if not, you're working more with an aesthetic and less with a philosophy. And I think that that can get watered down really quickly and then can just turn into a more general space that just has the toys. Um, Exactly. So if
0: somebody is looking to kind of dive in and learn more about this, know, is there a specific place where you might direct them to, to learn more about the Waldorf principles?
1: You can direct them to me. (laughs) I mean, like I I will honestly, that's what I was kind of getting to. (laughs) Yeah. I talk to people all day long. Um, It's really what I'm most passionate about because I really want access to happen. And I want this thing to scale and become more normalized in the way that Montessori is kind of in the mainstream. Waldorf isn't and it could help so many children and support so many caregivers. So send them to me um, and then if I don't have the answer, I'm sure that I have colleagues that do and I can, um, there's a beautiful facility in New Hampshire that does teacher training, but they also have a daycare which is kind of cool because you don't see a lot of, you see the parent child classes, but you don't see a lot of like drop off Waldorf program for babies and infants. So this is a pretty spectacular um, organization. So I could connect you there. Um, yeah, just send them to me and we will, we will connect all of the dots. And listen, the greatest news is I think there are Waldorf teachers out of the classroom everywhere. And like, that is a separate issue, (laughs) but like, there are, I have many friends who are fully trained Waldorf teachers who have chosen not not to teach in the big schools for their own personal reasons, but are just as qualified and experienced as anybody else teaching in a school, but they're looking for like a different path.
0: This actually is a great path. (laughs) If they can like raise the capital, like it would be incredible. Yeah, so can you mention a little bit about why you might think these this philosophy can thrive in a smaller space outside of the larger schools and programs? Yes,
1: so we're seeing Waldorf schools all over the world. We're seeing Waldorf schools in complete poverty. Like there's a Waldorf school, I think it's in South America, that is on a a legit. It's on a dump. So. Extreme extreme poverty. There is nothing uh, about the pedagogy that says it needs to be in a big brick building with eight grades, right? So, because I guess when the kids get older, there's there's more of a curriculum framework that the teachers follow. Like they have a lot more autonomy, I think, than most teachers. But really, like Waldorf is about how you see the child. And um, there's a spiritual component to Waldorf without being religious. And you don't, it's not advertised in the school, although I think you feel it. I think you feel it um, when you are actually in it. So, because of that, I mean, it's so easy to Waldorf homeschool, it's so easy to create pods, um, little micro schools. Like, it's so flexible because we're just looking at the children before us, working from a set of indications. And um, yeah, like we, I, n- I would never say like if, if you have all plastic toys, you can't be Waldorf. Of course you can be, because it's how we see the children and it's how we interact and, and experience the world with them. Um, so money should never be a barrier. There's no way that Waldorf can only happen at a certain socioeconomic level in a building that looks like this, like no way a play space is the part in my mind a a franchise of them. Like it is the perfect place to start where we can have these two room facilities. One is dedicated for the babies and the caregivers. And then we have this really expansive indoor kind of playground space uh, with a little garden in the back, I mean, it would be ideal, but we don't have to, you know, like, I think it's so possible. And because like open-ended toys and like free play and this kind of departure from little ones doing like academic robotic iPad work, I think we are, there is a departure from that happening. I think it's the perfect time to bring this holistic, whole child approach that supports the parent and the child.
0: I love that. And I love how Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that it doesn't have to be for everybody, as long as you can find your niche of parents whose values align with your own. I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. And again, just to kind of full circle moment back to another thing you mentioned, after the pandemic, I've definitely seen a lot more people drawn to this type of education that moves a little bit away from technology that moves more towards Mm -hmm. connection and nature. Mm -hmm. And um, I do agree that there is a ton of opportunity in this space, and it can look like a variety of different yeah. models. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing all yeah, of those different of opportunities course. and ideas. So if somebody is you know interested in learning more, or if somebody is interested in pursuing a Waldorf inspired space, I am going to link to, of course, your website and your social media um, information. But do you have one piece of advice that you would like to leave people with that are listening?
1: Um, I think it would be talk to Waldorf teachers, talk to Waldorf alum, um, people who have really been in the world, because when you look at it on the internet, you're seeing a very polished experience that's happening in a vacuum. And I think you really need to talk to people who have taught various personalities, different learning styles, um, children with different sensory um, processing challenges and ask them like, how have you dealt with these things? Because this is how it's being handled in my child's current program and it doesn't seem to be meeting them. How would you deal with it? And I think that it might be eye-opening. I think we might do things a little bit differently. And I always say, like, when I was doing my master's, I wrote a research paper comparing the Finnish education system to Waldorf education, because the overlap is so, I mean, it's, there's so much overlap, um, because they don't start academics until first grade either, like a lot of the Nordic nations don't. Um, And some people are like, oh my god, they'll never read, you know, if they don't. And, And the truth is, Sure. Some children are going to have trouble reading whether they start at three or whether they start at seven. Absolutely. Um, but when their brains are more developed and they're ready to sit down for a longer period of time, like, so they might need like this much time to practice. Whereas if they start at three, they need this much time to practice. And what we never want to happen is for the child to start feeling like I'm not smart. I'm not a good reader. I don't like reading. I hate school. I'm seeing more and more of that. So I'm in Boston and I'm in a city where everybody goes to public school, everybody. (laughs) Um, And I just, we are surrounded by these little children who hate school. It's just so sad because like school is the place they spend unless you're homeschooling, like your children are at school a lot of their lives right and then at home but it's like the second most important place that they're going and spending time and um the other thing that I'll just tell you which is I think unique a little bit unique to Waldorf is we loop with our kids so like our kids have this same teacher from grades one to eight or five however um however high the grade goes in the school. Like in a perfect situation, assuming nothing happens with the teacher, but they really get to know the child and their learning, um, and their temperament. And I just even see from like last year, the seeds that were planted last year, like how they are blossoming in in my daughter's classroom. Um, and that's a very different experience, right? When you're in more of a mainstream school because you have different kids, maybe some different kids, definitely a different teacher every year. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a long way to get to this. I think you should talk to a lot of teacher who's been through like a very, very legitimate program. I think that that is key. I think there are some smaller programs that are shorter, um, I would go talk to the teachers who have been through like the really, really long programs um, who have been in many classrooms, who have taught. Um, Even better, I think if you're a parent, I know that's not always possible, but I think you get a little bit different of perspective when you are also a mom, like especially talking to maybe a mom or a dad.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. I think it's so important to get all those different perspectives. So that's great advice. Yeah. So, you. um, if we want to connect with you, where is the easiest way to connect with you personally?
1: So, I always just send people to Instagram. Um, it's at Alchemy Kids. Just send me a DM. Like, we will probably respond within two minutes. Like, I'm right. here and I'm available. And this is what I do now. So, like, I I work with parents, <laughs> and I talk to parents basically all day. And I would love to talk to people interested in indoor play spaces or even starting, like if you have to start smaller, right? If there isn't the capital to build something, um, you can do in-home parent-child classes and you can keep it super cheap. We usually like bake bread or like we do something like together, or maybe we'll do like a little bit of handwork. Ideally, we would have that led by a trained Waldorf teacher, but like if you wanna get something going with a couple caregivers in your community, I could even create like a framework of how you could hold it, maybe a book that you could study together. I mean, honestly, just because I love this stuff so much, like I could even like Zoom like with like a small group that wants to learn more about it because really like this is what I want. Just want it out there.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll have to talk more about that with, yeah, my, I would love to with my current owners because yeah. I know a lot of them are looking to um, kind of take advantage of these opportunities that you mentioned and offer something different to yeah. parents and families that is not readily available. As you mentioned, there's yes. a lot of areas that aren't exposed to Waldorf education. And I think yeah. a lot of people share that same intent of increasing access. So I will yes. definitely link your Instagram profile. Thank you. and Thank I really you. appreciate um, having this conversation with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was amazing. All right, that wraps up my conversation with Jennifer from The Alchemy Kids. So if you wanna connect with Jennifer and learn more about Waldorf education and play, I've linked Jennifer's social media accounts, her course, her website, all that good stuff in the show notes of this episode. And I also linked the free guide that Jennifer was kind enough to create for us. And if you're listening to this episode, as it gets released, Jennifer is doing a holiday sale. Again, I will link all of those details in the show notes of this episode, but I really admire how Jennifer is making Waldorf education and principles accessible to so many people in so many different forms. So again, if this is something that you're interested in diving deeper into, all of Jennifer's information and resources are linked in the show notes. All right, if you have an episode topic or a question that you would like to suggest, please feel free to message me on Instagram or send me an email. I love hearing from you guys and I love creating content that you wanna listen to. And as always, if you found this episode helpful, the best way that you can show support for me or for the show is to leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. All right, playmakers, have an amazing week. I will see you right back here on Monday.